Tonight, we're coming to one of the, the first places where the suffering that was going on for this church really comes into play. Now, you could read this little section we're talking about and just say, oh, fix your eyes upon Jesus. That's great. That's a nice motto. We could put that on a T-shirt or on a bumper sticker, and we could just kind of, like, kind of run off and say, that's, that's my motto for my life. And it's a good motto, but we don't want to trivialize it. And one of the ways that we can, I guess, safeguard against trivializing that idea is to remember who it was written to. It was written to Jewish Christians in Rome who've already begun to suffer persecution and are going to suffer even more persecution. So this section uh, in chapter 3 here that's talking about fixing your eyes on Jesus is spoken to people who are undergoing trials. And that's important. Because here, you know what's interesting? Uh, some of you guys know that, uh, Tim Keller, famous pastor in New York City. He's written lots of books, right? He uh, came to RUF staff training guess it was uh, December 2016, and talked to us, uh, had a great session, he's so great, he had a great session on the culture today and the challenges that poses, not only for being a Christian, but for talking about Christianity to people in, in our world today, right? And he made this comment, he said, never before in history have we had this situation that we have now with regard to suffering. You could argue that people in the ancient world suffered maybe even more than modern people, particularly in the modern West. In other words, great tragedies unmediated by modern medicine and modern technology. Now, it's also true that modern technology has made some things worse, right? But I don't think we would try to argue that our suffering is more intense, for the most part, than that of most people in the history of the world. Particularly if you live in the West, particularly if you're a Belmont student, I don't mean to diminish suffering, but people have been suffering throughout the whole of human history. And what's unique about suffering in our day and age, particularly in the West, is that suffering is cited today as one of the main things that drives people away from God. It actually didn't do that in the ancient world. Suffering was real, was intense, but it didn't drive people away from belief in God or the gods. The, the way people today talk about suffering being a reason why they don't believe God exists is actually unique in the history of the world. Do you know that? Why? Why might that be the case? C.S. Lewis wrote about this about 50 years ago in a book that's not as well known as some of his other books called God in the Dock. Have you ever read that? God in the Dock. That's an essay uh, in a book with that title, collection of other essays and addresses that he gave. Now, the dock in the English legal system is where the defendant sits. It's like a little box in the courtroom where the defendant sits. And what C.S. Lewis is arguing is that, particularly after World War II, there was this massive shift in the way people thought about God. For all of human history, mankind believed that mankind was in the dock 
and had to answer to God for how they had lived their lives. But in the middle of the 20th century, there was a flip. And now, most modern, particularly Western people, believe that God is the one who has to answer for what he's done or not done. We've put God, C.S. Lewis says, in the dock. We've said, God, you need to defend yourself. You need to explain yourself. And this is why suffering in our day and age is something that many people cite for why they don't believe God at all. Now, that's important for us as we, as we come into here, because actually Hebrews 3, I think, anticipates this. Hebrews is a really interesting book. There are some things said about suffering that have the potential to turn our paradigm upside down. As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews here in chapter 3 suggests that trials are not our greatest problem. But actually, trials are one of God's ways of exposing what is our greatest problem. Let's read this. Chapter 3, and I, of course, didn't save one for me. Now, I actually, um, I have two versions here. I'm going to read the NIV, but I put the, the message down there. Sometimes... I like the message as a translation. I don't know if you've ever read that. Maybe you've never read the Bible. You found the Bible difficult to read. Um, The message is actually a pretty interesting translation, particularly in some of the Old Testament books. And it's actually really helpful in the book of Hebrews at times. But I'm going to read the NIV. Therefore, holy brethren, who share in the heavenly calling. It's not just brothers. It's a gender neutral term, meaning the the whole group there, they're being addressed. Brethren is a better way to say it. Therefore, holy brethren, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, meaning God, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we, the body of Christ, are his house, if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes from the Old Testament, lest you think the Holy Spirit didn't show up until Pentecost, the Bible disagrees with you. The Holy Spirit was all over the place. But so as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, referring to the 40 years that Israel wandered in the desert after they got out of Egypt. Where your fathers tested and tried me for 40 years, they saw what I did. That's why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray. And they've not known my way. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brethren, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, 
as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was God angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. It's heavy. It's a heavy passage. Now, I've mentioned to you before, this is a sermon. The book of Hebrews is a sermon. And it's a little unnatural to take like a bit of a sermon out of context and sort of slowly go over it bit by bit, week by week, like we're doing, okay? So this isn't the only thing that the book of Hebrews says about God. But like a good, a good sermon, there, there is challenge and then there is comfort. Matter of fact, I, I love the way, I don't even know who said this, but I've always thought this was a great way to think about preaching. The job of, of a preacher is to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. And this is one of those sections that has a little of both in it. But the disturbing the comfortable is the part that we really don't like in our day and age, right? Well, let's pray together and then we're going to dig into this. And what does it mean to fix our eyes on Jesus, lest we be hardened by sin's deceitfulness? Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for hard words that we probably wouldn't have the courage to say to each other or to hear. Thank you, Lord, that you take it upon yourself to give us life-giving rebukes. Help us to hear. Help us to not harden our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, trials have come to this church, okay? And the question is, what are they going to do about it? The, the great thing that they're facing is, should we turn back from following Christ and go back to just being Jewish? And you might say, well, what, what good would that do? Well, it would actually help them in the temporal circumstances because under Roman law, Judaism was an allowed religion. And for the first few years, the Romans didn't know there was a difference between Judaism and Christianity. And as long as they didn't know there was really a difference, the Christians kind of got covered under that protection. But it didn't take long before the Jews started rioting whenever people like Paul would show up to preach the gospel, and the Romans figured out, oh, like what this guy, even though he's Jewish, he's saying some things that these other Jewish leaders don't like. And we're, so we've not heard about this thing, Christianity. This is a new religion. It's not a protected religion. And so this persecution begins. But there's still safety from persecution if you go back to Judaism. Okay? So that's what's going on here. And the writer of the Hebrew is saying, don't go back. Don't harden your heart. And we'll talk more about why going back doesn't make any sense as the letter goes on. But that's what's going on. These people are facing kind of this, this, you know, go one way or go the other way. And he's encouraging them, don't go back. Jesus, the apostle, the one who is sent, has went before us. Follow him, 
fix your eyes on him. That's going to come up over and over and over again. So what's the heart of this passage? Here's what we're going to talk about tonight. Hebrews suggests that trials are not the problem. Trials are God's way of exposing the real problem. And thus, in times of trial, it's vital that we fix our eyes on Jesus so that we won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, especially the self-righteousness that feels justified in demanding things from God. And to do this, we need each other's help. So what's our real danger? If trials are not the problem, trials are God's way of exposing the problem, what is the real problem? And if you look at verse 8, he says, he quotes this passage. It's a famous passage from the Old Testament. Do not harden your hearts. This is God speaking to his people, saying later, this, this, this is spoken after the wandering in the desert, saying don't harden your hearts. In other words, the hardening of their hearts that God's people were engaged in while they were wandering around in the desert for 40 years, it wasn't the last time that they hardened their hearts. And so later God is saying, don't harden your hearts like what happened in the 40 years. Don't do that. And Hebrew says it's an ongoing issue. In other words, the problem is a perennial problem, that of hardening our hearts. And what Hebrews is suggesting is the trials do not cause the hardening of the heart. The trials have a unique ability to expose the direction of our hearts. And our hearts are always moving in a direction either towards God or away, either towards his people or away. And sometimes it's hard to know what's really going on in your heart. The Bible says this. Jeremiah, the prophet, says, the heart is deceitful above all things, beyond understanding. And God doesn't leave us wondering what's going on in our heart. Trials have a way of exposing what's going on in our hearts. Our hearts are never standing still. They're always moving towards some vision of the good and the beautiful. And the question that Hebrews wants us to face is, are we moving toward the cross and putting our hope in what Jesus did? Or are we moving, becoming more bitter because we feel like we've done everything we need to do to deserve a good life from God? Or maybe we're growing more despairing, feeling like I can't do enough to get the kind of life I want from God. See, if you're not resting in what Jesus did, then trials have a way of taking you to either despair or bitterness. Bitterness, if you feel you really are doing great, like you're living a good life, and God should be pleased, and God should be paying you what you deserve. Trials have a way of exposing that, because if your heart turns more bitter in trials, it's because you feel that you're getting something you don't deserve. Or sometimes when trials come, you feel like you're getting exactly what you deserve, because you feel like, I haven't been living the way I should. I feel guilty, I feel ashamed, and now God is punishing me, and I have nobody to blame 
but myself. So if you're trusting in your performance, in what you can do, then when trials come, either you feel mad at God or mad at yourself. And trials have a way of exposing what you're really trusting in. When trials come, we tend to turn, we, we always turn to something to comfort ourselves. Well, at least I'm not like that. Or at least I didn't do that. Or at least I'm not like him or her, right? We're always trying to kind of make ourselves feel better. And that's a good indication of what we really are trusting in. Unbelief in what God has done and the sufficiency of what Jesus did at the cross is our greatest problem. But unbelief in God is never by itself. We all believe in something. Tim Keller put it this way, he said, you can't doubt everything all at once. You have to stand somewhere to doubt. If you're doubting something, it's because you're standing somewhere that you don't doubt. Either your own experience, something you've been told, maybe something you've figured out, but you can't doubt everything all at once. And if trials are making you doubt that God exists, it's worth exploring what's going on. Is demandingness what's going on. That's what was going on with the Hebrews. Demandingness. And demandingness is the mark of a self-righteous heart. It's ugly. Sometimes in the midst of trials, it's really hard to tease this out because the demandingness from someone who's crying out to God for help sometimes just seems like the only reasonable thing. I remember a friend of mine... um, you know, I didn't get married till I was 33, and I remember in seminary um, talking to this friend of mine. We'd been friends in college. We were both still single. It was hard, right? And um, I remember talking to him one time, and he goes, you know, is it too much to ask that God could just give me a girlfriend? And I was like, it's not too much to ask, but it is too much to demand. And I don't think you're asking. And God is too good of a God to let himself become our butler. To let himself be God on a leash. Sometimes trials expose that we want what God can give us more than we want God himself. And here's the thing. It's good to find that out. It's good to find that out. Like if Hebrews is true, if this really is God's word, So I believe it is. You want to talk more about that? We can talk over a cup of coffee. But if you really believe this is God's word, then what you believe in matters. Right? You saw how it ended. There were people that were not able to enter into God's rest because they hardened their heart against God. He's not playing games. And if he's not playing games, then it's really important that you know What's going on in your heart? Maybe so important that trials are worth it if they help you realize you're going down a path of destruction. I know that's heavy. I know that's heavy. 
But that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And writing this to people are suffering. Now, this is the hard thing. This is why it's helpful sometimes, well, it's helpful a lot of times, to go through books of the Bible from beginning to the end. Because all I know is it's hard to say hard truths to people that are hurting. I remember years ago I had this, this girl that worked for me in the college ministry. This is when I was still on staff at a church down in Franklin. And um, she'd suffered horrifically. Her mom had been um, killed in a car accident when she was in high school. But her mom had been in a coma for a long time until, you know, her dad, like, you know, it was just a mess. Her dad ends up, you know, falling in love with another woman while her mom's still in the coma, marries this other woman. This other woman was just like, you know, Cinderella's stepmom, you know. Like, she would take her, her mother. I remember one time she told me in the office that her stepmom had said, you know, basically taken all of the mom's jewelry and said, you're never going to have any of this, and gave it to her stepdaughters, Right? This kind of stuff. And what was always amazing to me is, is when I would sit down with people and, and then when this girl that worked with me would sit down with suffering people, like I would always be like, oh man, this person's going through a really hard time. I just need to you know, sit with them and be comforted. And she would always have the courage to ask, what do you think God is doing in the midst of this? I just thought, geez, that's the question that needs to be asked. Not why is God doing this? How dare God do this? Sometimes we comfort people, think we're comforting people, when we're actually feeding their self-righteousness and feeding their bitterness. You have to be so careful. But it's so hard to say things like this. I'm glad that I don't have to like, make up a message about this. But it's in the Bible. I can't like, skip this and just go on to something, because this is important. God put this in the Bible for a reason. It's because trials expose the thing that matters most. What are you doing with God and his offer of the gospel? Are you running to Jesus? Are you fixing your eyes on Jesus? Or are you becoming more hardened by sin's deceitfulness? See, the demandingness in our hearts is often hard to see. Martin Luther talked about this in his commentary on uh, Hebrews, he says, deceitfulness, the deceitfulness of sin. Take that seriously. Sin is always hiding. It always will lie to you and say that it's perfectly reasonable when, in fact, it's demanding. A demandingness appears quite reasonable to us most of the time because we secretly believe that God owes us. Demanding this reveals a heart that wants what God can do more than a heart that wants God himself. And that's exactly what happened to Israel in the desert. For 40 years, they wandered. But, you know, in Deuteronomy 8, God says, you know, do you remember, do you know why I led you around in the desert for 40 years? Here's why. So that I could make you hungry, so that I could feed you, so that you could know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, God says, I led you around for 40 years so that you would come to depend on me for everything. I led you around the desert for 40 years so that you wouldn't, so that you wouldn't just kind of run off and just do whatever you wanted. I knew that you had a bigger problem than just being enslaved in Egypt. 
you needed the sin problem dealt with. You needed to be restored to trusting me as your Father who loves you. Sin is deceitful. Well, what does God do in the midst of our danger, this deceitfulness of sin? He calls us to fix our eyes upon Jesus. What does that even mean? That's just some kind of like fancy phrase. Well, here's part of what it means. That the Bible and the sacraments reveal Jesus. There's something about this language of looking that gives us a clue as to, to, to what the Christian life is all about. It's looking to Jesus, focusing on him. Why? Because for every fear and every bit of unbelief that you have, there is something in the character of Jesus that has the power to wash it away. Whatever fear or unbelief resides in your heart, there is something revealed in Jesus, if you could only see it, that answers that fear and that unbelief. And it takes a whole community to help us see it. I love how he says, encourage one another daily, lest you be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So what does that tell you? That tells you that it's an ongoing danger. Sin's deceitfulness is not something you ever get over. It's an ongoing danger every day, and you can't do it by yourself. You need other people. But you know what? Dan Allender, this great Christian counselor, wrote a book on encouragement. And he says, basically based on this, this passage, encouragement is being, real encouragement is speaking gospel truth, speaking about the character of God and the character of Jesus directly into someone's fear. But to do that well, to encourage them daily, lest they be hardened by sinful deceitfulness, you actually need to know them. And you need to know where are the fears that tend to, to grab hold of them. Tim Keller said one time that if you pull up somebody's idols, the things that they're trusting in, the false trust that they have in their life, if you pull them up by the roots, you'll find their fears clinging to them. And that's, that's what we need to speak into. Otherwise, it's kind of cold comfort. You know, you might, if you don't know somebody very well, and, you know, probably the interns are, are finding this out, or maybe some of you guys that are meeting with, with younger students are like, I'm trying to figure out who this person is and kind of what's going on with them. Until you really know something about their story, it's hard to, to speak gospel truth into the place where it really connects. But, but if you know something about somebody, if you know somebody that has been shamed forever, by their father. Like, you know that there are, there are passages in the Bible that are going to be hard, but passages that they need to hear and need to know and probably need to be reminded of over and over and over again about what a good father we have. In other words, some people really struggle to believe that God is good, but they don't struggle at all to believe that he's all-powerful. They think that's the problem. He's all-powerful, but he's not good. He's going around messing up my life all the time. They need to be reminded that he's good. But there are other people like, well, I know he's good. He just doesn't have power to change anything. And they need to be reminded that he's strong and powerful. 
And, and, and you don't know how to encourage somebody unless you begin to get into their story. And if you follow the trail of pain in someone's life, you'll get to these core fears and core ways that they've said, I'm going to protect myself from ever feeling vulnerable like that again. I'm going to kind of like wall that thing up there to where even Jesus can't get in there. But Jesus needs to get in there. And he calls us to be about that work, right? Gazing upon Jesus, fixing our eyes upon Jesus. Let's say one other thing about this. And I put this kind of long quote on here from a guy named William Romaine. Um, he, wrote, he wrote letters back in the 1700s. He was a Christian pastor. And one of the cool things about those days is that people would write pastors about their spiritual problems, and then they would write these long, profound letters, and many of them have been published. So you kind of get like to sit in on pastoral counseling, which is nice. It helps you learn how to encourage your friends, and it also may speak to you. Well, there was one time that a friend of his was really down, and wrote to him. Now, this isn't the only reason that people get down, but as William Romaine is like trying to figure out what's going on in this guy's heart, he basically says, I think here's what's going on. You're not fixing your eyes in Jesus. You're fixing your eyes on your own faith. Let me tell you, the quickest way to fall out of love with someone is to work on the relationship rather than focusing on the person. Whenever I hear people talk about how we're going to just work on the relationship, but it's sort of abstracted from this other person, I'm like, oh, look out. No, you need to look at this person, how God has made them to be, and what's beautiful and commendable, right? This is how it is with Jesus. If you're always looking at your faith rather than looking at Jesus and his beauty, Pretty, pretty quickly that you're going to feel pretty bad about your relationship with Jesus. You know why? Because your faith isn't very pretty. It's just not. It's not very impressive. It's full of holes. Right? And, and when you look at your faith rather than Jesus, this is, you know, William Romaine says this in more flowery language, but I'd have to, like, interpret it, so I'm just going to give you my paraphrase. If, you, if you're looking at your faith, you've got two problems. One... Like, it's not going to help you because you're going to look at it and you're going to see all the flaws in it and then you're going to feel like Jesus is as flawed as your faith. That's one problem. The other problem is, why would you want to look at your faith? You know why? Because you want to be able to put the crown of crowns on the head of your faith rather than on Jesus. It, it seems like a little more controllable. See, one of the scary things about trusting in Jesus is that he doesn't just do what we want all the time. But so sometimes I think we're always looking for ways to control him. And one of the ways we try to control him is by sh saying, well, look, I've done this and I've done that. I've suffered this way. I've performed this way. Therefore, you owe me. And God doesn't work like that. God won't let you use him like that. So when you look at your faith, look at your faith, it's like looking at your relationship rather than looking at Jesus. You're putting all your comfort, trying to get comfort from your faith. But you need people to help you with that. 
Like when, when you're in these kind of hard places, and I know all of us are, you need people that you've led into your life that know your story, that have the courage to not just flatter you and say, oh, I can't believe God would you know, send trials to somebody as awesome as you. Can't believe that. No, like later, actually in Hebrews chapter 12, do you know this? Hebrews 12 says that if you're not enduring trials, you probably aren't a true child of God. It's awesome. I mean, it's, re- it's remarkable the way Hebrews turns this around because we would think, well, if I'm really God's child, I shouldn't be suffering. And Hebrews 12 says, no, actually, that's the mark of a true child of God because he disciplines those he loves. He cares that much. Encouragement is not flattery. We're to encourage one another to fix our eyes on Jesus. And what does that require? It requires knowing each other's stories, sharing our stories with one another. This is why small groups are so important. If it's not an RUF small group, get in a group. If you're trying to figure out Christianity and live as a Christian, you need to be walking with people that can get in your life and know your story. But it's also important that you yourself are in the scriptures so that you have something to encourage people with. Right? Encourage them, not just flatter them. Encourage them. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's like. Let me tell you what I know from my story about how he's encouraged me, and let me share that with you. Jesus. Jesus is beautiful. Jesus is great. I don't have time to get into all this stuff about Moses because it would just take us down. But the whole book of Hebrews could basically be summed up this way. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the Old Testament law. He's better than the Abrahamic priesthood. All this stuff, he's better. But we need our eyes open to see it. And we need our friends to help us, lest we be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Let's pray together.